I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning. Open them to Acts chapter 2, if you would, please. Acts chapter 2. We're going to be there in just a moment, and we're going to be there very briefly. And then we're going to go very briefly and very quickly to Matthew 28 before moving on to other passages. So we'll start this morning in Acts chapter 2 and in Matthew 28. Now, I said last week, and uh, hopefully you remember, and if you weren't here or if you don't remember, it's okay, I'll say it again. We're drawing near to our end, to the end of our series on the church, where we've been asking the question, what does the Bible say about the church? How does the Bible define the church? What does the Bible tell the church that she's supposed to be doing? How she's supposed to be devoting herself to certain things and avoiding other things? What is her purpose and her calling? We've talked about her existence. We've talked about her ministries of priority. And we're wrapping up these last few weeks considering some things that are still matters of importance. Last week, we actually asked the question, is church membership in the Bible? Is that a concept that we find in Scripture or is that something we have made up and invented on our own? And I hope the answer was quite clear. It's in the Bible and that's why we practice it. Today, we're coming to look at the ordinances of the church the two ordinances given to us by Christ Himself, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, to understand this, uh, let me just tell you, there's not widespread agreement on the number of ordinances that are to be practiced in the church, particularly between uh, a Catholic understanding and a Protestant understanding. Catholic understanding says that there are seven sacraments given to the church by Christ that we should be practicing, and Protestant churches believe there are only two ordinances now those two terms sacraments and ordinances they mean different things but they can also be used interchangeably we believe there are two as a baptist southern baptist protestant church that there are two ordinances given to us in scripture by our lord jesus christ baptism and the lord's supper and this morning we're going to look at baptism what is baptism and why do we practice it and is it important And is it important how we do it? And how should we be doing it? Now, much like with spiritual gifts, there is too much for me to discuss this morning for it to be profitable on the subject of baptism. In fact, from about the second century on, there have been differing views on baptism. Much has been written on baptism. Much has been debated and disputed concerning baptism, much has been declared about baptism, and there are a wide range of views that I hope to try and avoid this morning, and rather be what I think to be much more productive, and look at why we as Baptists believe what we believe about baptism. We do need to know what we believe, and we do need to know why we practice what we practice, and how we practice it. So, while I still want to avoid a little bit of the distinctions, I do have to give you a quick history lesson. Part of this is Silas Dodgen's fault because he asked me last night to speak on the Reformation. And it is still in my blood. And so I'm going to recount to you some of the history of the Reformation, starting where I started last night in the second century. So, baptism... Let's skip the book of Acts because that's where we're going to be. But baptism begins to be viewed differently in the second century in two primary ways. There's infant baptism 
And then there's believer's baptism. The technical terms of those, infant baptism is called paedo-baptism, and believer's baptism is called credo-baptism. Those are the two distinct views taking place already right after the death of the apostles. Now there's a church father named Tertullian who comes up and rises and begins to argue very strongly and urging very strongly against the baptism of babies, infant baptism. And his argument stands and takes ground up until about the 5th century when we meet a man in church history named Augustine. Augustine espouses a view of infant baptism. And from the 5th century on, infant baptism begins to take a much stronger stance. In fact, it's about the 5th century that the Catholic Church becomes to be more formal and structured and recognizable. By the time the Reformation happens, which was October 31st, 1517, 503 years ago from last night, there are three primary views of baptism that have taken place. Infant baptism, baptism to save you, and what will become believer's baptism in a much more formal fashion. Now, the Catholic Church teaches that you can be and must be saved through baptism. It's called salvific baptism, a baptism that saves you. Other churches, like the Church of Christ, also espouse that view. But by the time the Reformation comes along, Luther enters the picture, Calvin enters the picture, Zwingli enters the picture, and they begin to practice baptism differently. Actually, they do practice infant baptism just like the Catholic Church, but their belief about baptism is different. It's the same practice, different theology. Out of good intentions, I believe, the church began baptizing infants out of a desire for them to be saved. Especially when the mortality rate of infants and children was so high in ancient parts of world history. So they believed baptism saved to a degree and they began to baptize children. And they began to baptize sick people with sprinkling and pouring and things of that nature. And then Luther and Calvin and Zwingli come along and they decide baptism doesn't save you and they stand on the great doctrine that you and I stand on today. You are saved by Christ alone and faith alone in Christ alone. Not by works. And that includes baptism. Yet they keep practicing infant baptism. Luther famously said, well, there's just not enough evidence in Scripture to stop the practice. That's not an argument at all. But that's where Luther landed. Calvin and Zwingli, these guys that you don't know, uh, likely, uh, equated baptism with circumcision. And they called baptism the sign of the new covenant. And so, just like circumcision was the sign of the old covenant, baptism is the sign of the new covenant. And so everybody who's associated with the church must be baptized, including infants, just like infants were circumcised if they were associated with um, Israel. And then, at the same time, there is another group popping up in the Reformation. And they're espousing some very ancient thoughts from this man, Tertullian. And they become known as Anabaptists. Now, there's three men particularly at the time of Martin Luther. So Martin Luther nails his theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, in the year 1517. By the year 1520, three years later... Anabaptist theology concerning baptism has already been developed 
and formulated. And three men are at the head of it. A man named Felix Manns, a man named George Barock, and a man named Conrad Grable. These three men believe in what we call believer's baptism. It's where the Baptist view of baptism comes from. Actually, we would say the Baptist view of baptism comes from the Bible. But Anabaptists help us formulate some of those thoughts. They eventually get declared heretics by the Protestant leaders and powers that be at the time. And to be declared a heretic in that time meant execution. So what these three men do is they meet in the home of Felix Manns and they decide, are we going to continue believer's baptism or are we going to renounce it and get back in the good graces of the church? And George Barrock looks at Conrad Grable and says, baptize me. And he does. And after he's baptized, he baptizes the other two and begins to baptize others and others and others. And a few moments later, periods later, Felix Manns is arrested, condemned as a heretic, sentenced to execution, and in a form of mockery, condemned to be executed by drowning. Felix Manns is the first Anabaptist martyr who is killed for believing in believers' baptism. These three men and others who begin to follow into their heritage declare that only professing born-again Christians can be baptized. A belief and a claim that you and I take for granted today. But a belief and a claim made out of Scripture that was radical at the time that the Anabaptists make it. And by the way, they hated the name Anabaptist because Anabaptist means rebaptizer. They didn't believe they were rebaptizing. They believed their infant baptism was invalid, that they were baptizing for the first time. And these men were willing to give their lives over such things. Now, I give you that history lesson for two reasons one, because I like history and I have the microphone. Number two, to say and ask you the question, do these, these things really matter that much? Does, does baptism really matter to the point of being drowned in the river? Is Felix Manns foolish or faithful? And us today, we make a distinction. In fact, one of the main reasons we're Baptist and not some other denomination is because of our view on baptism. Are we just divisive? Or is our view on baptism actually that important? Now that history lesson can all be boiled down, and some of you may wish I would have boiled it down. It could be boiled down to two main questions. Who can be baptized? And what exactly is baptism? And those are the questions I hope to answer for you this morning. But I must confess, I don't know that I'll do a good job. There is an element of mystery in baptism. Just an element. That element doesn't mean that we can't understand it or shouldn't seek to understand it. 
But it does mean that we shouldn't try to invent things to try to explain away its mystery. Often people have tried to invent terminology or invent concepts about baptism to explain its spiritual significance. And all they've done is contribute to its mystery and confusion. I hope to avoid that. And I hope to avoid that by addressing four main questions for you today that we're going to answer. Number one, who can be baptized? Number two, how do we baptize? Number three, what is baptism? And then very quickly, I hope to wrap up with what does baptism actually do for us? What does it actually do? So let's begin here. Number one, who can be baptized? And that's where we come to Acts chapter 2. We looked at Acts chapter 2 last week when we talked about church membership because Acts chapter 2 is the birth of the church. Peter preaches a great sermon, but it's a very piercing sermon. You remember from last week, we highlighted this. If you look in verse 22, verse 23 of Acts chapter 2, Peter's filled with the Spirit and he's directing this uh, crowd and he's directing this crowd upon truths about Christ and salvation, all these wonderful things. A crowd is gathered because a great sound of a mighty rushing wind has come and it's got the attention of the people in Jerusalem. These Apostles, disciples have been filled with the Spirit. They're speaking in tongues. People are intrigued. And so Peter, once the crowd is gathered, gets their attention. And he eventually says in verse 22 and 23, Jesus of Nazareth is a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Verse 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And we talked about last week how piercing of a statement that is. You're not guiltless in this crowd. You're the reason Christ is crucified. Yes, it's God's providence and definite plan. And you were the instruments of that plan. You crucified Jesus. And far from driving this crowd away, look into verse 37 and verse 38. Instead of leaving, it says when they heard this, the whole sermon from Peter, they were cut to the heart, convicted. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The instruction is to repent and be baptized. And at the risk of being nuanced, which I do not think it is, the order there in that verse is very important. You are called to repent. Paul tells us in other places, we are saved by repenting, which means we turn away from trusting in ourselves and we turn to God and we trust in God. We acknowledge and confess our sins before a holy God and confess our dependency upon Him for salvation. Repenting means I go from trusting in myself, trusting, and instead I start trusting in this promise that God has made that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I relinquish myself and I hold on to Christ. And Peter says to them, repent first and foremost and then be baptized. 
And we know that Peter means that instruction and he means that chronology and he means that sequence because of what is said elsewhere in the passage. Look down in verse 41. Those who received his word were baptized. It's another way of describing believed. It's those who received that were then baptized. Go down to verse 44. We're now talking about the fellowship of the church, the gathering of the church. How are they described? They're described as those who believed. Believed what? The word that they had received. They're not described as those who were baptized. Now, I told you we'd go to Matthew 28. Flip over to Matthew 28. It's the great commission of our Lord. This is where baptism is actually instituted for the church. The Lord's Supper, as we'll look at next week, is instituted in Luke 22 and further explained and instituted in 1 Corinthians 11. Baptism is in Matthew 28, the great commission of the Lord. Jesus says to His disciples, all authority, in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Again, the chronology should not be lost on us. The only imperative in this whole passage in the Greek is to make disciples. It is the central command. And we tend to emphasize the other things. Go, for instance. But the central command in verse 19 is make disciples. A disciple is one who follows after their master, follows after their leader. Christ tells us, go into the world with the authority of Jesus and make followers of Christ who are then subsequently baptized. Not who are baptized and then declared disciples. But those who are identified as disciples and then baptized. All throughout the rest of the New Testament, we find the same chronology. I point this out because, again, as I said, there is belief within professing Christendom that baptism saves. But in the New Testament, the consistent pattern is that one is saved before being baptized. And I'll turn you to one more passage that's an astounding remark made by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verse 17, Paul says to this Corinthian church, Christ did not, did not, Send me to baptize. But, in contrast, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. There's something very important going on there. The Apostle Paul is making a distinction between preaching the gospel in his own ministry and baptism. Now, to preach the gospel is the same as saying evangelize. Christ has sent me to evangelize the world. And we fall short of preaching the gospel if we don't also call people to respond to the gospel. That's part of the gospel message, isn't it? The gospel isn't just the good news that Christ offers salvation. And the gospel isn't just the message to tell us that we need to be saved. The gospel is also the good news because it tells us how we're saved. 
which means to pro- proclaim the gospel, preach the gospel, evangelize with the gospel, is to call people to respond to that gospel message. So Paul, therefore, is not preaching the gospel if he's not also calling people to respond. And yet, in his understanding of preaching the gospel, he can make it where it's totally and entirely divorced from baptism. In other words, I can preach the gospel and I can call people to respond to that gospel message. I can tell them how to be saved. I can see them converted and be saved entirely independent of the act of baptism. I wasn't sent by Christ to baptize. I was sent by Christ to preach the gospel. So church, there's a big difference between the way that we're saved through faith in Christ and the act of baptism. Baptism does not save, or Paul is a very poor missionary. Now I'm going to take you on a marathon run through Acts just because I want to berate you with this point. Acts chapter 8. You don't have to turn here. I'll, I'll do my best to be speedy and turn to these passages. Acts chapter 8. Verse 5 and 6, we find the church has been scattered because of the persecution of Saul, who will become Paul. And in 5 and 6 of Acts 8, Philip goes down to the city of Samaria and he's proclaiming to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. And in verse 12, it says, when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were then baptized. Both men and women. You see the chronology there again. See the same thing in verses 26 through 40 with the with Philip again in the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 10 of Acts. Verse 44 Peter is meeting with Gentiles and preaching to Gentiles because he's had this vision and he's interacting with a Gentile named Cornelius. And in verse 44 it says. While Peter was still saying these things, teaching them about the gospel, preaching to them about Christ, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with people, Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Let me stop there just for a moment. The Holy Spirit is present. The Holy Spirit is indwelling, and the church, the believers who were there, are affirming it. Verse 46, for they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. Passages like this should not be lost on us, church. Get what happens in this moment. They receive the Holy Spirit and are then baptized. It's not that they are baptized to receive the Holy Spirit. Very big distinction. Acts chapter 16, just a few more. And and I want you to look in this chapter because it's good. It's one of my favorite descriptions of a person in all of Scripture. Acts chapter 16, verse 13. Timothy and Paul and Silas are doing missionary work. They're in Philippi. Verse 13. 
on the Sabbath day, they went outside the gate to the riverside where they, they supposed there was a place of prayer. And Luke reports and says, we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized. And her whole household as well. Flip over a few more verses. The Philippian jailer, verse 25 through the end of the chapter. But we're not going to read all of that. And verse 29, verse 28 is where we're going to pick up. Paul and Silas are in prison. Most of us know this story. They're in prison. They're singing hymns while in prison. Earthquake happens. Everybody's chains and bonds are loosed. The doors open. The Philippian jailer who's in charge of the prison thinks everybody's escaped and so he's going to kill himself because he knows what the punishment is going to be. In verse 28, Paul cried out with a loud voice, Don't harm yourself. We're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is not be baptized. The answer is believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Both with Lydia, both with the Philippian jailer, they believe first and are baptized second. Same thing in Acts 18 with the Corinthian believers. And on 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 and on. In fact, there is no other example in the Bible where unbelievers are baptized. Now, it's tricky for some because the apostles so equate salvation with baptism, which tells us the importance of baptism. But in nowhere do we find unbelievers being baptized. We find people who are believing in the words that are being preached. People who are exercising faith. People who are already possessing the Holy Spirit. Those people are the people being baptized. And such a point as this is vastly important for us, church, because it becomes a gospel issue. If we get these things out of order, then we at the very least confuse people. And at the very most serious portion, we jeopardize the eternity of others. A right understanding of baptism becomes a gospel issue in many cases. And the Bible is abundantly clear isn't it? That we are saved by our faith in Christ alone. Now I know such things are hard for some. I've sat with people and had conversations with people who grew up believing and being taught vastly different. And I've sat with people in coffee shops Recently, 
who are still trusting in that baptism as their means of salvation. But the Scriptures are abundantly obvious and abundantly clear. No work of ours can save us. And no work of a baptizer can save us. That there's only one work that saves and it's the work of Christ on the cross. And there's only one way that work gets applied to our lives. It's when we trust in that work alone. Then God in His infinite mercy and His infinite grace and His abounding love applies that salvific work of Jesus to our souls through His Spirit. Baptism is important. We see it. It's it's importance in the scriptures, but it is never necessary for salvation. So who can be baptized? It's those who have been born again. It's those who have already been saved. Paul, who labors this point in the book of Galatians, he's laboring in Galatians to tell these Galatian Christians not to believe the false gospel that's been preached to them. That false gospel that was preached to them, Paul tells us, is a gospel of works. And he labors and he labors and he labors to say, it's not by works, it's by faith. Abraham wasn't justified by works. He's justified by faith. You and I aren't justified by works. We're justified by faith. And he even makes this wonderful remark, having begun by the Spirit, are we now going to be perfected in the flesh? It is by the work of God. Faith in the work of God. And in this whole laborious argument he says this in chapter 3 verse 25 now that faith has come he's talking to people who are already born again now that faith has come we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ You've put on Christ. We know you've put on Christ. We've seen that you've put on Christ because you testified of it in baptism. You are united to God through faith. Let me take you back to the 1520s to another Anabaptist individual named Balthazar. Balthazar. If any of you are pregnant, that would, that's a name suggestion for you. Balthazar Hubmeyer. He says this. No physical element or external thing in this world can cleanse the soul. Rather, faith cleanses the hearts of people. Thus, it follows that baptism cannot wash away sin. Water baptism is an outward and public testimony of the inner baptism of the Spirit. The Scriptures do talk about baptism in two ways. A physical baptism and a spiritual baptism. But they do not talk about them equally. Water baptism, as he says, is an outward and public testimony of the inner baptism of the Spirit. So who can be baptized? Only those who have placed their faith in Christ who are believers. That's why we believe 
and believers' baptism. The Scriptures are abundantly clear. Number two, how do we baptize? How are we supposed to baptize people? And some of you are wondering, does that even really matter? And I would say it matters for two reasons. One, we want to be faithful to the Scriptures. And two, God tells us that it matters, that something is being accomplished in the way that we baptized. So we believe as Baptists that the Scriptures teach us to baptize by immersion, which means to dunk somebody as far as we can under the water and submerge them. Now the word that's used exclusively for physical baptism in the New Testament is the word baptizo. And it means every single time, always, to dip, to immerse, to submerge. It's always the New Testament word. It's even used in the spiritual sense as well. We see this example in the example of our Lord when He's baptized. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, we see it in other examples. In Acts, when the disciples and apostles are baptizing, specifically Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So if we want to be faithful to what we believe Scripture is teaching, and we do, we think Scripture is teaching, believe Scripture to be teaching immersion. There are other reasons as well. But I want to ask the question now, why would God care at all about the way that we baptize? Why do the New Testament writers seem to care at all? Why does the mode matter? Why immerse and not just sprinkle? It's easier to sprinkle. It's easier to pour. Why do we have to make a big ado about filling up some tank, going down into some river, going down into some pond, and putting somebody's head under the water? And it's because God is teaching something and communicating something very important in the act of immersion. W.A. Crystal is an old Southern Baptist leader. He's passed on in the, I think, year 2002. He was pastor of First Baptist Church Dallas for 50 years. He said about the ordinances, he says the ordinances are preaching the gospel to the eye. It's a great, great statement. They preach the gospel to the eye. And that's exactly why God is concerned with immersion. He's giving us a picture. A visible representation of what takes place in our hearts. It's declaring spiritual realities. We see this uh, illuminated by Paul in Romans chapter 6. If we looked in Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 4. Paul writes and says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And he says in verse 3 and 4, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk and newness of life. Those words might sound familiar to you. We say those words when we baptize here. Buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. That's why the mode of baptism is important. At least in my estimation, the main reason why it's important. There, there are other reasons, I think, and we'll talk about them, a few of them in just a moment. But one of the main ones, indeed probably the primary reason, is that it pictures our death with Christ and our resurrection with Christ. 
It's declaring that that spiritual reality has taken place in the soul. We are not literally buried with Christ. And we were not literally resurrected with Christ. Paul is talking about spiritual things here. So a literal baptism isn't going to accomplish a spiritual reality. But it will picture that spiritual reality, won't it? Now, I have shared with some of you, I personally have the best view in baptism when I baptize somebody. And I've told some of you, it is for me one of the most poetic moments. And I want to try to describe it to you. When I baptize somebody, it's almost as if everything goes into slow motion, but I'm looking for these few points. Every person I've ever baptized, when I begin to lower them into the water, their face grimaces. It would be creepy if they kept their eyes open. And that's very unnatural. They all squint. They, we naturally want to keep water out of our eyes, water out of our nose. And so every person I've ever, ever baptized makes a grimace with their face. And it reminds me instantly of the pain of death and the pain of the grave. And then in equally slow motion, as you push a body down into the water, that water disperses and moves. And then it washes over. And that individual is entirely submerged. And it is a very meaningful picture of the dirt of a grave covering a body. Because every nook and cranny, every inch of that person is covered. And then it just stops in my mind. It stops for a second. And they sit there. And they're under the grave. And they're under the water. These thoughts, I promise I'm not exaggerating, go through my mind. They happen very quickly. But these are the pictures that I'm, I'm thinking through when I baptize a person. And then, all of a sudden, I rip them up. Because they have been ripped from the grave. They've been ripped from the claws of death. And they're jerked out of the water. And that water that once was like dirt covering them in the grave begins to drip off of them. And it no longer really looks like water in a judgment sort of fashion. It looks more like a renewal. Like a washing. And almost every person I can think of that I've ever baptized, when they are yanked from the water, they smile. And they open their eyes. As if God has breathed new life in their soul again. Immersion is not just some ritual we do as church people. It has a very powerful, meaningful, important picture. We were plunged beneath the dirt of our own grave. And by the grace of Christ, yanked out and given new life. And that which once was our death actually became a purifying, refining fire, and we have been washed 
does the mode of baptism matter? It does. We are a people testifying that we have gone from death to life, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. And do you know how unnatural that statement is? Everything else in this created order goes from life to death. The only thing, only thing that goes from death to life is a Christian. And that by the grace of Christ, and that is the picture being painted in baptism, God, in His infinite grace, has given us a wonderful example, a wonderful visual aid of the power and work of the Gospel. Let's move on. What is baptism? Now, if baptism doesn't save, if it's only a picture, then why does God make such a big deal about it? Why is it important? What's it actually doing for us? Well, I've said this from the baptistry before. And I'll condense it here. It's a public testimony of an internal work. Let me point out four internal works that I think are taking place. And I'll do it very quickly. Number one, it's a testimony of being made new. If you look in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, it says this. In Him, talking about Christ also, in Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. We're talking about a spiritual, spiritual matter here, an internal matter. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. What is baptism? It is that picture that we have been made new, that we have undergone the circumcision of Christ, that we are now different people. Not because of the act of baptism. It is a testimony to the fact that we are different people, different people from the inside out. Number two, Baptism associates us with the salvific work of the Christian God. That's a mouthful. But in Matthew chapter 28, we're told to make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the triune God. Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. To associate with the God of the Bible. That we might be different from unbelievers. But also different from every other pagan religion. We are now marked by the God who saves. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The three in one. Number three, baptism is important because it also testifies to the new covenant washing. New covenant washing. I have to, have to show you this passage. Ezekiel chapter 36. Verse 22, God speaking says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And this is what God says He's going to do. 
I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Why baptism? Why does God tell Christians, His people, to get into water? Because it's a picture of Ezekiel 36. This new covenant internal cleansing that God has promised. Every baptism, every single baptism from the time of the book of Acts to today is a declaration that we are a new covenant people. Where God saves through His Son, Jesus Christ, and cleanses us through Christ of all of our sins. Number four, I have to turn you to this text as well, because it is one that confuses many people. 1 Peter chapter 3. What is baptism? Baptism is another testimony of an internal work, this time testifying to deliverance from judgment. Deliverance from judgment. Verse 18, Peter writes and says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here, Peter's equating baptism with the time of Noah. And just like God sent water to judge the earth in the time of Noah and saved them through the ark, so too the waters of baptism symbolize the waters of judgment where we are buried in that water. He says baptism corresponds to this reality of the flood in Genesis. And he says it's not a removal of dirt from the body. It's not just physical. We're talking spiritual realities. And the water of baptism, like the waters of the flood, Cover you completely. And if you're not in Christ, then you will stay submerged. You will stay buried. As I said earlier, if you are in Christ, then you are yanked from the waters. And just like Noah and his family were saved from the judgmental waters of the flood in Genesis through an ark, so too Christians are saved from the grave through the ark of Christ. Baptism testifies to this reality that we do not stay under the water. 
that Christ has saved our souls yanks us from the grave. Very quickly, I said this was a public testimony. God always has His people in the New Testament baptized publicly because it's God's intention to publicly set His people apart. They must testify of these things publicly. Testify that these things have happened in their souls before witnesses. They must not be ashamed of associating with Christ. Jesus says that in Mark 8.38 and Luke 9.26. That's the point in Acts 2.38 when Peter tells the church to be baptized in the name of Christ. Don't be afraid to associate with Jesus, but faithfully and boldly associate with Him. That's after all your purpose as a Christian now. To be marked as belonging to Christ. You have a new identity. A new allegiance. A new last name. A new country. A new king. You are Christ now. But there's another reason that baptism is public. Because the one person being baptized is not the only person participating in Christian baptism. Two other groups are participating in Christian baptism. Number one, it's the church. And number two, it's the baptizer. And what are we saying when we baptize somebody? That we believe their profession, so far as we're able, is credible. That we put them in the baptismal waters with our affirmation that we believe their confession and faith in Christ is legitimate. We are putting our stamp of approval on them as well. That's why we don't just open up the floor to anybody be baptized. That's why we have moments of examination asking you to share your testimony. Why do you want to be baptized? Tell me how you came to Christ. Tell me what it means to follow Jesus. Share the gospel with me. That's why we ask all of those questions. Not because we want to make baptism hard for anybody, but because we know that when we baptize somebody, we're saying we think they belong with us. Baptism is public so that you, as the one being baptized, might testify to witnesses that you are now belonging to Christ. And it's public so that we who are baptizing you might also say, we believe they belong to Christ. So fourthly, very quickly, what does baptism do? It puts a mark on you as an individual and it unites you to brothers and sisters in a tangible, obvious way. It's the front door of the church. It's a mark that you shouldn't easily be able to take back on your life. It begins a relationship with God's people that isn't easily ignorable. It sets you apart as God intends. Wayne Grudem says this, he says, The amazing truths of passing through the waters of judgment safely, of dying and rising with Christ, and of having our sins washed away are truths of momentous and eternal proportion and ought to be an occasion for giving great glory and praise to God. That church is also the third reason baptism is public, to generate within the people of God and all those who are involved Great moments of praise. 
After all, does baptism not testify of a saving God who is active in His saving work and sparing us all from the grave? It does. I look at this subject this morning, church. I preach on it because I think we all need to know it. What it is and why it's important and why we do it how we do it. I think we need to take it seriously and I think we need to take it joyfully. That it is no light matter, but it is an occasion worth celebrating and praising God for. I think we ought to encourage others to participate in it and realize that we have a participation in it even if we're not the ones being baptized. And I think we ought to go to great efforts to support every brother and sister who publicly marks themselves as belonging to God and His people through the act of baptism. We celebrate with them. My hope and prayer for the result of this sermon has been twofold. One, that some of you would believe, be born again, and confess your need to be baptized to identify with Christ and testify of His work. My other desire... is that we as a church would see baptism as a great gift and a great moment and a great act of great importance. We would give it the due attention and priority that it deserves. That we wouldn't take it lightly and the next time God blesses us with a Sunday morning where we baptize new brothers and sisters, we would realize just exactly the significance of such an act. As I said, my first goal is that maybe someone would be saved this morning and see that they need to be baptized. Or maybe they've never been baptized before. Maybe you have never been baptized before and you realize I've just become a Christian recently. Maybe in the last year, maybe in the last two years. I need to be baptized now. The good thing about God and His gracious mercy saving us apart from our works is that our theology doesn't have to be perfect. To be saved. And your theology doesn't have to be perfect to be baptized. You may not know all the ins and outs while you're being baptized or when you're baptized, but you know now the importance of it and that you need to follow through with that act of obedience. If that's you, yield yourself to the work of the Spirit this morning. Father, Your Word informs us of all that we need to know to honor You individually and as a church. You've told us what we are to be doing and You've told us how to do it and You've told us how to respond to it. You've told us exactly what's going on and and baptism is no um, exclusion to that. Sometimes, Lord, we are guilty of just making things ritualistic or traditionalistic or just doing things because that's how we do it without ever thinking it through. I pray that wouldn't be the case anymore with baptism. That we would put it in its proper place as a joyful act of obedience that we all can celebrate as people testify to the internal work of your Spirit. Thank You, God, for saving us. We do praise You for loving us. We do praise You for saving us. And we thank You for the picture of baptism reminding us 
of the extreme nature of the gospel as we've been taken from death to life. Set our minds and our hearts upon those truths this morning. To your praise and to your glory we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.